So this morning, I want to start with something that as a Christian, I believe to be true. Being a Christian means living differently. Being a Christian means living according to different standards. Being a Christian means sometimes making different decisions, making different choices from those people around you. Being a Christian means looking at life from a different perspective, evaluating life based on different measures. It means valuing things differently from those around you. Being a Christian means having a different Lord, having different loyalties than those around you. Being a Christian simply means living differently. And while it's easy to believe that, it can be much harder to know what that looks like. How are we to live differently? Which decisions should we make differently? That's what we want to look at in our fall sermon series. We have eight different topics that we want to examine and ask how Christians approach these different topics. Some of those topics include how do Christians fight? How do Christians use technology? How do Christians serve? How do Christians raise their children? A complete list is in your lifeline. Along with a picture of a really cute little kid who is not mine. It's okay though. Um, and if you want to know which topics are on which dates, we're going to go linearly down the, we're going to go in order. Um, so if you are really, really interested in how Christians pass on their faith, uh, circle it on your calendars. Just figure out which Sunday that is. Um, commercial over. We are doing this because we believe that Scripture, the theology of the church, the traditions of the church, can help shed light on these topics and should help us shed light on these topics. For instance, while the writers of the Bible never anticipated the smartphone or the internet, ancient practices of keeping Sabbath can help inform faithful Christians into how to best approach technology. The world is speeding up every day. The world keeps getting faster and faster and technology keeps growing. That app you thought was cutting edge a few months ago, no longer. And we don't have a lot of scientific data on the impact that technology is having on our kids. As a parent of young children, I routinely find myself not knowing what's best for my family when it comes to technology. I know kids need to be familiar with technology as it's how they will interact with the wider world for the rest of their lives. But endless screen time doesn't seem right. How might the church use all the resources at our disposal to help faithful Christians approach the technology age? That's the type of question we will talk about in two weeks. Yeah, I said the commercial was over, but I'm sorry. <laughs> now it's probably really over. Each week we will have a resource that went into the creation of the sermon that you can have at your disposal for further reading. So if you're really, really, really interested in how Christians pass on their faith, not only will there be a sermon, there will be a book that goes along with it that you can, you know, do all the things on Amazon and read. A good deal of the answers to our questions, a good deal of the wisdom on each of our topics is going to come from Scripture. 
that's probably a good thing. But if we're going to look at the Bible when it comes to asking how Christians fight or how Christians parent, our first question should probably be about how Christians read the Bible. And it is. This morning we are going to look at how Christians do and should view the Bible. What is its place in the life of a Christian? How do we read it? What guidance do we take from it? What are we to do with it? And to start our discussion of the Bible this morning, let's look at what the Bible says about itself. Also a good place to start. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed is God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now in this section of the letter, Paul is writing to his protege Timothy about persevering and keeping faith in the ministry of the gospel in the midst of false teachers. His words here are a part of his final instructions to Timothy. After telling Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, Paul will later tell Timothy to preach the gospel in all times, in season and out of season, because Timothy works in the midst of false teachers who are willing, willing to tell people whatever they want to hear. Stay true to the gospel, Paul says. Stay true to Scripture. Now, alongside Paul's words in Scripture, I want to make this statement. Throughout the history of the church, faithful Christians have read the Bible in different ways. In our current day, I would argue that faithful Christians continue to read the Bible in different ways. This isn't necessarily a self-evident claim especially in today's culture and climate. We just saw that the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed, so how could there be different ways of reading it? The trouble isn't different Christians denying that Scripture is God-breathed. The trouble is that oftentimes Christians can't agree on what God-breathed means. And yet, Christians reading the Bible in different ways is nothing revelatory. How often have we gotten into conversations with fellow Christians in small groups and Bible studies and discovered we read different texts differently? Sometimes those differences shed new light on our own readings of Scripture. Sometimes those differences lead to new insights. I never picked up on that detail quite like you did. However, what sometimes seems to be the implication in larger church culture today is that while there are many ways that people can and do read the Bible, faithful Christians read it one way. And oftentimes that one way is the way the person speaking reads it. So whether it's literally, historically, literarily, allegorically, narratively, etc., we have fights and debates over how we might most properly read Scripture. And what's funny is that the vast majority 
of arguments we have in contemporary society about the Bible and how to read the Bible would be unintelligible for the vast majority of Christians who have been a part of the historical church. All of this is to say that when we ask the questions, how, how do Christians read the Bible, the best answer is differently. And that's okay. And there's no litmus test on what makes a Christian faithful or unfaithful, right or wrong, when it comes to the Bible. However, I do want to talk briefly about how Christians have read the Bible and then provide one way that I find exceedingly helpful. Most of this comes out of the book, Scripture and the Authority of God, by N.T. Wright. That's our resource for today. N.T. Wright is a bishop in the Anglican Church, as well as a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Andrew's University in Scotland, where I'm sure he can play the old course, the most iconic course in all of golf, anytime he wants. Luckily, I was able to see through my fierce jealousy over his life and um, found his books incredibly informative with immeasurable depth, yet also really accessible. He wrote this book in response to what he calls the Bible Wars of our current church culture. By that, he means the duel that is taking place between the two major ways of reading the Bible active in our churches. Those two ways could best be described as literally and critically. Those in the literal camp say that the only true way to read the Bible is to take every word impeccably and irrefutably true over and against outside sources that seemingly contradict the plain sense of Scripture. For example, if Genesis 1 says that the world was created in six days, then the world was created in literally six 24-hour periods. If Exodus says that Israel was a nation in, of slaves in Egypt who traveled from Egypt to Canaan after gaining their freedom, then that's what happened. And if science or archaeology or sociology don't have evidence or have conflicting evidence for these things, it doesn't matter. In contrast, there are those who read the Bible critically. Those who read critically seek to use the disciplines of science, archaeology, history, sociology, etc. to uncover the truth of our world, then evaluate scripture in light of that truth. For instance, if you watch the History Channel enough, you are sure to come across a show with a catchy title like Exodus, the real story, that says that historians don't have much proof of an Israelite exodus from Egypt. Those who read the Bible critically will accept that and then ask why the Israelite community would create the exodus story and find meaning of that uh, and find meaning in that text relative to what it would mean for the Israelites at, sorry back up. Those who read the Bible critically will accept that fact and then ask why the Israelite community would create the Exodus story. And the meaning they find in the Exodus story comes relative to what it would mean for the Israelites as a community. The literalists would say that the meaning of the Exodus narrative is that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God set them free. Admittedly, there are many shades of gray within each camp. 
And yet, these are probably the two main readings of Scripture present in modern times. And while I'm sure each of you has encountered a variation of at least one of these types of readings, for the vast majority of the church, this is not how Christians read the Bible. Which is why I started by saying that throughout the history of the church, faithful Christians have read the, have read the Bible in different ways. Initially, the church read Scripture as a way of seeing God's activity in the people Israel as continuing in a new and special way through Jesus of Nazareth. As the early church faced the challenge of newly emerging and heretical Christianities, Scripture was used in conjunction with the creeds to develop understandings of the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the Trinity, and even which Gospels of Jesus were authoritative. The church fathers interpreted Scripture literally, literarily, allegorically, historically, using whichever methods needed to further the mission of the church. N.T. Wright does a really good job of outlining these different ways that faithful Christians have read Scripture, a better and more thorough job than I could hope to do here. Uh, so if you are interested in how Christians have read the Bible throughout history, I commend this book to you. It's really good. But towards the end of this book, N.T. Wright delivers his way of reading Scripture. It's a way that I've come to see as quite helpful as we think about how to use Scripture to guide our lives. Wright argues that what Scripture reveals is that we are in the midst of a great drama. That we are in the midst of a grand play. And this play is in five acts. The five acts are creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall, Genesis 3 through 11. Israel, the rest of the Old Testament. Christ, the Gospels. And the church, Acts and beyond. And here's what this means for us and for our understanding of the authority of Scripture. If you are acting in a play, you have to understand what has happened in the play and what will happen in the play in order to understand your role as a character. This is especially true in improv. In improv, you have to understand the scene that you find yourself in as it sets the parameters for how you are to act in the scene. Then you have to pay particular attention to what the other actors are doing throughout the scene, or else you will throw everyone off, including yourself. Dramatic actors, even as they are confined to a script, are making choices constantly. What body language should they inhabit during this run of dialogue? Should they play this line sarcastically, straight, or with humor? Even public speakers, bound by the words on a page, are constantly making choices. In order to know which choice will be most effective, one needs to know what comes before and what is coming in order to take their place. This relates directly to Wright's understanding of Scripture. Wright argues that Christians find themselves living in the middle of the fifth act. We are to look at Scripture as mostly providing the historical foundation for our place in the drama, while also giving us visions of the ending. We take the first four acts as the basis for the world in which we find ourselves. The first three acts lay the groundwork for the decisive and climactic fourth act, and yet we ourselves are living in the aftermath of the climax. 
If I call it the denouement, is that getting the, the literary term right? Yes? Wright says, to live in the fifth act is thus to presuppose all of the above, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and to be conscious of living as the people through whom the narrative in question is now moving towards its final destination. We ourselves are key characters in the end game. But what is that end game? For that, we turn to Romans. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I always feel like clapping after that. <laughs> the end of the play is simply that. A renewed and restored humanity living in perfect communion with the God who has worked with, been patient with, and sacrificed throughout history to bring about this consummation. We are the ones who carry that message into the world. We who live in the fifth act do so as the people who have been reunited with God in Jesus Christ. We live as people who know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And our job our mission, our goal is to take that message out into the world. Another way of understanding how this works is by looking at what our position in the fifth act means we aren't, which is a terribly written English sentence. So I will abdicate writing and let N.T. Wright take over. <clears throat> he says, Thus, for instance, one, we cannot assume we are living in a Garden of Eden situation a world without evil. So we cannot argue directly from the way things are to the way things should be. We can in principle argue from the way things were to the way things should be. This, however, is difficult in practice, both because Genesis 1 and 2 are brief and stylized, and because the redemption, when it arrived, is promised not as a return to Eden, but as a going on to the new creation in which the old will be not given back as it was, but transformed and fulfilled. We cannot, two, we cannot imagine we are living in a world without redemption. So we cannot argue that ev the evil of which all are aware is omnipresent and all-powerful within the present world and that nothing can be done about it. There's a lot in those, just those first two things. Because we don't live in the first act, we can't say that the way things are is the way they should be. Evil is real and present. It's a part of our daily life. But, number two... Evil is not all-powerful. We are not stuck in Act 2. There is more of the play that we know about. And so we are not pessimists. We are neither optimists nor pessimists saying that, hey, things will be bright, sunshine, and rainbows forever, or the world's going to someplace in a handbasket. Number three, we are not members of Israel B.C., so, as one example out of many, we ought not to rebuild the Jewish temple and offer animal sacrifices within it. That one's pretty clear. Number four, we are not living during the time of Jesus' public career 
and must not assume that, for example, the temporary prohibitions on preaching the gospel to non-Jews, which happens a few times in the gospels, apply to us. You can tell that the prohibition is temporary because it is explicitly lifted after the resurrection in the Great Commission. Not all cases are that easy. Some are actually very difficult, as we see with Paul's wrestling over questions of Jewish law, but there is usually a clue. That's a parenthetical note from N.T. Wright that he had to put in there, but, you know. End of quote. So all of which is to say, it's okay if we evaluate different parts of Scripture differently based on how they inform our part in the story. For example, we might say that the passages of Scripture that talk about the fall are more binding on us, have a bigger impact on life as we know it, than those that govern the daily lives of ancient Israel. We can look at Old Testament laws to search for principles that might guide our living in the world, but the minute details, what crops you can and can't farm next to each other, what your shirt can and can't be made out of, are not binding for us because we are not living in Act 3. We might hold the teachings of Jesus and, Paul, and of Paul a bit higher than we do the Old Testament laws, and that's okay because we are members of the church living in Act 5. So if we boil this all down, what we're talking about is reading the Bible missionally. We read the Bible from a standpoint of who we are and our particular job in this great drama, of those who are charged with spreading the gospel message to the world. Our place in the play is standing in the gap between the inception of the church and the consummation and restoration of all creation. For us, Scripture helps us to be the people who create more and more of the kingdom, who live more and more of the kingdom of life here and now. Scripture helps us spread the gospel message to the world. And Scripture reminds us that we are God's witnesses to the ends of the earth until all people know that nothing can separate them from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us and how we look at Scripture and use Scripture to guide our lives? I'm going to take a drink first. This schema is going to guide most of our series moving forward. Let me explain what I mean by that by going back to the topic of how Christians use technology. Can you tell I'm a little excited about that sermon? The Bible has no specific literal instructions on how Christians ought to use their smartphones or apps. Big props if Paul could have foreseen the smartphone. But he didn't. As Christians, however, we want, we need guidance from Scripture and how to approach this highly complicated and universal aspect of modern life. We want Scripture to give us wisdom as we try to interact with and use and embrace the ever-changing world. And if we have this five-act schema in place, we can receive wisdom and guidance from Scripture even if Scripture doesn't explicitly or literally talk about technology and smartphones. We can look at how God set up life in ancient Israel and see if there are themes. We can look at how Jesus approached the laws given to Israel and see how we might reframe our ability to project that forward. We can look at how the early church embraced life together, how they accepted elements of culture, and how they lived counterculturally, and the reasons behind each one. 
and we can have as our guiding principle what our purpose in this act is. To spread the good news that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. There are many ways to read the Bible. When we ask the question, how do Christians read the Bible? The answer is in as many different ways as there are Christians. As we seek to be people of faith here and now, I hope this way of reading Scripture, this particular way, can help guide you, can help you use Scripture to spread God's amazing news that nothing separates us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.